Welcome everyone to Sunday Night Bible Fellowship. It's great to have you with us today as we embark on a new year. I want to wish everyone a blessed new year as we start out this year again in the book of Luke. And we are in Luke chapter 20. So we are looking forward to this year, Lord willing, to complete the book of Luke. We have a little over four chapters to go. So looking forward, these will be very dramatic chapters, of course, because we are now entering into the death of Jesus Christ, uh, his burial, resurrection. So these are quite dramatic. They are quite detailed, but they are packed with truth, truth that we need to understand, we need to know as we work our way through all of these events that are before us. I put a uh, title on this particular passage, which is found in Luke chapter 20, verses 9 through 18, from a vineyard to a cornerstone. From a vineyard to a cornerstone. So let's dig right in. Let's take a look, first of all, of uh, the Passion Week, which we are in right now in this uh, particular section. We go back to Monday, which was Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem on a donkey colt. That would happen on Monday. On Tuesday, Jesus cleanses the temple again. And the reason we say again is because uh, at the beginning of his ministry, he also cleansed the temple. That, that's the time that he made the whip. This last time that we looked at when he cleansed the temple, it does not say he made or used a whip, but he overturned tables and seats, prevented people from uh, using the temple as a shortcut. Then we move to Wednesday, and we have uh, Jesus teaches all day on the temple or in the temple grounds. The Jewish leaders officially challenge his authority. And then Jesus tells parables to the chief priests, the scribes, and the Pharisees on the temple grounds. That's where we're at here in uh, this section, verses 9 to 18. Jesus is telling a parable now to the Jewish leaders to try and drive home the point of what they have done and what Israel has done to their Messiah. So, go to verse 9 of uh, Luke chapter 20, and it says, And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and rented it out to vine growers, and went on a journey for a long time. So Jesus again is going to tell a parable. Very common for him to do that. A parable is a, is a tool that is used for teaching. It's a story, it's an illustration, it's an example, and he used it many times to drive home his points. And he's doing it here. Uh, so he says a man planted a vineyard and he rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey for a long time. Now, renting out the land 
was not uncommon in the first century as it is not uncommon today. I have friends uh, in southern Minnesota who own several farms and they rent those farms out. Sometimes they have multiple farms, sometimes they own just one farm, but they rent those farms out and then for a split of the uh, profits when everything is said and done. For instance, the landowner will get 30% of the profits and the one that's doing the work and doing the farming and putting everything into it, that person will get 70%. Just as an example, again, you work out the details, you work out the contract as to who's going to get what, but it is common today for it to happen when all the crops are in, when all the expenses have been paid, then you sit down and you figure out what the profit is left over and then you divide it up. So a contractual agreement would uh, be set up in this instance. The absentee landowner was free to live elsewhere, did not have to live close to the land or in this case close to the vineyard and he was free to travel when and where he pleased. So you'll notice at the end of verse 9 here it says, and he went on a journey for a long time. So in order to do this, he must have complete trust in the vine growers, those who are going to tend to the vineyard, those who are going to do a good job in all the details that are involved in caring for a vineyard. Now this is not something that is foreign as those who would be listening to this particular parable. This would not be foreign to them, the idea of a owner of a vineyard and he has vine growers on it. Let's go to Isaiah 5, 1 to 7 on the next slide. It says, let me sing now for my well-beloved a song, my beloved, concerning his vineyard. And you'll see the comparison here. We're talking about God, who is the owner, and he has a vineyard, and that vineyard is Israel. That's what it's talking about here. End of verse 1. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it all around, removed its stones, planted it with the choicest vine, he built a tower in the middle of it and also hewed out a wine vat in it. Then he expected it to produce good grapes. That's an important line there because this is exactly why the owner of a vineyard has it, is that there might be production, that there might be good grapes that would come from it, but it produced, as it says here, only worthless ones. Why is it saying that? Well, because this is, again, compared with Israel, and Israel failed as uh, to be fruitful and to accomplish God's will. And so, as it says here, they failed. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why, when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? So now let me tell you what I am going to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it will be consumed. 
I will break down its wall, and it will become trampled ground. I will lay it waste. It will not be pruned or hoed, but briars and thorns will come up. I will also charge the clouds of rain to rain no rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. So we have this backdrop in the Old Testament, which pins down for us exactly what Jesus is talking about here in this parable when he is explaining about an owner of a vineyard, him leaving it to others, and expecting some kind of produce. But it has happened before. As you go into the Old Testament, you find that God has done a similar thing, and Israel, his vineyard, has not produced the fruit that he was hoping that it would. So, before we go on with the rest of the parable, just to identify who we're talking about here, the owner of the vineyard is God the Father, the vineyard itself is the nation of Israel, the vine growers are the religious rulers of Israel entrusted with leading Israel, which would be the chief priests, the scribes, the Pharisees, the elders, the Sanhedrin, and so on. All those leaders in Israel, they were entrusted with leading Israel. Then there are the slaves that are mentioned in this particular parable. The slaves are the prophets of God that were persecuted and killed. And then lastly, it talks about a son, and that son in this parable is referring to the Lord Jesus Christ. So verse 10 says, At the harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers, so that they would give him some of the produce of the vineyard, but the vine growers beat him and sent him away empty-handed. All right, let's stop right there. This is, in actuality, quite shocking, because here you have the owner. This is harvest time. You would like to collect an investment, so he sends a slave. A slave of his sends him to the vineyard, wants him to collect, as it says here, some of the produce of the vineyard in verse 10. But horrifically, the vine growers beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And that was a shock to all those listening to this parable, thinking, what? This is terrible. I mean, here this landowner has invested in this piece of land, in this vineyard. He's entrusted it to people who would work in the vineyard and so on. And now he expects to collect on his investment. And he sends someone in to receive a payment, so to speak. And they beat the guy up. And so uh, it was a shock to all those listening uh, that this response of the vine growers who beat the slave is what came out of this whole thing. So it says in verse 11, and he proceeded to send another slave and they beat him also and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty handed. So there was not only a refusal to pay what was due the owner, But there was a criminal act here of assault on the slave and on the second slave, as we see here. 
And the amazing thing after the first one is beat, I mean, you look at this and you say, wow, look what the owner does in response. He sends another slave. No charges are brought for what they did to the first slave. And you got the same result. They beat him. And you think to yourself, well, now it's time for revenge, right? Well, no. The owner sends a third slave who they wound and send away. So you notice it here in verse 12. He proceeded to send a third, and this one also they wounded and cast out. And you would certainly think the owner would do something, bring him to court. I mean, what what do you do with these individuals that he keeps sending his slaves to, and they mistreat him, they physically abuse him, and it is almost incomprehensible what is going on here. But what you can look at with the owner is there was great patience and grace that was displayed by the owner. It's pretty amazing when you take a look at it. All right, now let's go on to verses 13 to 16. So we've got the owner sending in three different slaves, three different times. These slaves are all beaten. They are mistreated. And they are sent away empty-handed, which means that the owner received nothing back from his investment in the vineyard. So verse 13, what does the owner do? Well, it says, the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. And so going still another step, the owner wonders what to do. And we can ask ourselves, what would we do if we were in this situation? I mean, would we apply the principle eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, and go after those individuals, those vine growers, and beat them? I mean, is is that what we're looking at? Do we want to take them to court? They had courts in those days, just like we do today, and take them to court for what they did, the criminal aspect of it, as well as there was a legal aspect because they didn't fulfill their contract. Or does he fire the wine growers and hire a new group? Those are some options. What the owner decides to do is to now send his son, just demonstrating again more grace, more patience. And the amazing thing, when you think about it, is he sent in three slaves. They were all beaten. They received nothing. And now he's sending his son, who he probably figures to himself, I mean, I hope they listen to him, but I'm running the risk here that they are going to, as well, beat my son. And that would not be good, And but he's willing to risk that, so to speak. But he's probably thinking to himself, certainly they'll respect my son. Verse 14 says, But when the vine growers saw him, the son, they reasoned with one another, saying, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance will be ours. So what they want, bottom line, out of this whole thing, they want the inheritance. They want the vineyard. They want to run the vineyard themselves, and they want to run it the way they want to run it. So, 
Let's kill the son, and then the inheritance will be ours. Again, they want to be in control. They want to have it all. Verse 15 says, So they threw him out of the vineyard, and they killed him. Can you imagine? They're killing the son. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? So they kill the son. And by the way, this is premeditated murder. They plan to do it. You can see that. You know, this is, this is the heir, verse 14. Let us kill him so that the inheritance will be ours. This is premeditated murder. It's not something that was done on spur of the moment. You know, and what can the owner do to us? So, verse 16, here's the response. Here's what the owner of the vineyard will do to them. He will come and destroy these vine growers and will give the vineyard to others. So, Jesus lays it out exactly and definitely what will happen. They will be destroyed. And we know when we make this comparison now with Israel, this is exactly what happened to Israel in 70 AD. This is being told in roughly 32, 33 AD, somewhere is in there. We got another approximately 40 years and the destruction of Israel will come. And that's what Jesus is saying in this parable and trying to get home, drive it home to Israel that what you have done is going to bring about judgment. It's going to bring about wrath. And as a result of it, the vineyard is going to go to others. We'll talk about who that is in just a little bit here. So they not only hear what Jesus is saying, they understand it. The word that's used here, the Greek word that's used here, when it says at the end of verse 16, when they heard the word heard there, the Greek word akuo, we get our word acoustics from that word. It's a word which means they understood it. It's not just to hear. You remember as you go through the Gospels and Jesus tells a parable, he gets all done and he says, let him who has ears hear it. And the word again here is the word akuo. He doesn't mean just you know, the vibrations going into your eardrum, he means that you understand it. Why am I saying that? I'm saying that because this is is the explanation for their response. When they heard it, when they understood it, they said, may it never be. What does that indicate? That indicates that they got it. They understood it. That's why they gave this strange response. You look at it and you think, well, why would they respond in such a way? Well, because they understood the implications of this entire parable and that this applies to Israel and that what Jesus is saying is, is that Israel, you are facing judgment because of what you've done to the prophets whom God has sent and then eventually to his son. So what they're saying is, and, it, it, and, and when they say, may it never be, it's a word which is the strongest word, uh, words to use in the Greek language. Absolutely not. Or no, no, and a thousand times no. This cannot happen. Israel cannot be destroyed and replaced. So they get it. 
They understand what Jesus is doing in this parable. He's driving it home. You know, this really is a very simple parable. It's easy to understand. It's easy to make the comparison with the history of Israel. What they did in the Old Testament with the prophets, what they then are now doing with the Son of Man and will do to him. And they are going to suffer judgment as a result of it. So they followed the line of reasoning from Israel's history, and they feared if the parable would be true, this could happen. And they're saying, oh, no, 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 this can't happen. We can't have this happen or take place. So in making the application, then let's just, again, take those that are involved here and realize what Jesus is teaching here. We put down these individuals before. Now let's expand a little bit as we have seen the parable. So the owner of the vineyard, we said, was God the Father. He brought Israel into existence, right? And he leaves the care of Israel to its leaders, to the leaders of Israel. They are to take care of the vineyard. They are to take care of the people of Israel. The vineyard, as we saw in Isaiah chapter 5, is the nation of Israel the chosen nation and people of God. God expects to receive spiritual fruit back from his ownership of Israel. He brought her into existence. He's cared for her, provided so much for her, and now he expects a return on his investment. He expects to receive back the fruit of their lives that they lived, and so on. So when we get then to the vine growers, these are the religious rulers of Israel entrusted with leading Israel, including the chief priests, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, the elders, and so on. These are all the group that were to care for the vineyard for Israel. And in the Old Testament and all the way through, the intertestamental period, the 400 years between the Old Testament and New Testament, when the Pharisees and all of this leadership developed, all the way through, time and time again, they fail. The leadership fails. The slaves, well, the slaves, you go back in the Old Testament, that God sent time and time again, these are the prophets of God that were sent to Israel and were persecuted and killed by the religious rulers. So the Old Testament gives a detailed, vivid description of God sending prophets time and time again to call Israel to produce spiritual fruit. So there's no doubt when the religious leaders are sitting here listening to this, they understood exactly what Jesus was saying. And Jesus is walking them through, and he's saying, I'll tell you where this is going to lead. This is going to lead to the wrath of God being poured out on Israel, and it's going to lead to judgment of Israel. And it's not going to be a pretty picture, let me tell you. Jeremiah chapter 7, verses 25 and 26. Let's just take a look at a few passages here. Notice Jeremiah 7, 25 and 26. Jeremiah is one of the prophets that was sent to Israel. One of, in this parable, it would be one of the slaves that was sent. Notice verse 25. Since the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt until this day, I have sent you 
all my servants and prophets, daily rising early and sending them. Yet they did not listen to me or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck. They did more evil than their fathers. Again, identifies for us, my servants, my prophets were sent to you to warn you, judgment is coming, repent, turn from your wicked ways, and follow me. Jeremiah 25, 4. And the Lord has sent to you all his servants and prophets again and again. But you have not listened nor inclined your ear to hear. So there was just time after time, all these prophets that God continued to send, nobody's listening in Israel. They're turning their back. So you had captivities. You had the Assyrian captivity, 722 B.C. You had the Babylonian captivity, 586 B.C. And the horrifics of those captivities and what happened, we went through when we looked at the Book of Lamentations, a city that was just set idle and barren as a result of God's judgment. And that's going to come again, Jesus is saying. It's going to come in the future, and it did come in 70 A.D. Matthew 23, 37 and 38. Here's Jesus as he looks at the city of Jerusalem and weeps. We saw this a few weeks ago. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together, the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. Again, a stern warning by Jesus that you are not listening, you are not repenting, Israel, and as a result, judgment is going to come, judgment is going to fall. And then lastly, we have the Son. And as we said, finally God sends his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will be mistreated, and he will be killed by Israel's leadership along with the Romans, who have a part in killing Jesus as well, the murder of Jesus, plain and simple. And Jesus is outlining it. He is saying this is exactly what's going to happen. They're saying, no, 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 no. And he's saying, yes, 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 unless you turn. And, of course, they did not turn. So then we come to verses 17 and 18. At the end of this passage, and now we see... Israel failed, so who is God going to turn to? Verse 17, But Jesus looked at them and said, What then is this that is written? Okay, he's going to go back to the Old Testament. Going back to the Old Testament, they were familiar with these passages. And he's saying, What what does this mean then? I mean, check it out. The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. And everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. So when we leave verse 16, the son is dead. But the dead son is not the end of the story here. And that's why Jesus is continuing on. And you'll notice that by the conjunction 
in verse 17 that starts out the word but. So he is continuing on explaining, teaching them off of this parable exactly what is going to happen. We've got the son that's dead. We've got Jesus saying in the parable that this is going to be given over to others. So exactly who is this going to be given to? Well, we know that Jesus rises from the dead and he becomes what is called here the chief cornerstone. Now, what is a cornerstone? A cornerstone is the first and most important stone when erecting a building in the first century. There's cornerstones today. We have other means of squaring up a building and so on than cornerstones, but as a way of kind of uh, commemorating or uh, a traditional thing, there's buildings that still have cornerstones put in them, and they'll have the date, for instance, written on it when that cornerstone is put in. But the important thing to understand, we need to get back into the first century and understand what it meant to them. A cornerstone, it's the first stone that is put down in the erecting of a building. doesn't matter how big the building is. That stone is put down. It's the first one. It's the most important one. And it had to be, a, as much as possible, it had to be an absolutely perfect stone. It had to be square. It had to be flat on its sides, on its bottom, and so on top, because everything in the structure was going to be measured and dropped into place according to this stone. So, as they're bringing stones to a building to become the cornerstone, builders would reject stones until they found the perfect one for their building. When they found just exactly the right one that was as perfect as possible, that's the stone they would use as their cornerstone. Now, I got a few slides here just to demonstrate this or just to graphically see it, visually see it. First one here, you can see a building. You can see the corner here. You can see in gold or yellow the cornerstone. First one that would be laid, all the other stones in the entire edifice and the entire building were all set in place in accordance with this cornerstone. That's why it's so important that that stone be absolutely perfect. Next slide, you can see some lines that are extended off of that stone that give you the idea that everything else is going to be measured in accordance with that stone. All the angles in the building, everything will be determined by that cornerstone. Next slide, you see a stone that was put in a wall that's not very good. It's not flat. It sits crooked. And when you start putting stones on top of it, and it's got slants to it, whatever, on the top, well, that's going to set the roll on top at a bad angle. And you're going to just end up with a real messed up building. And in the next slide, you can see a cornerstone. This is kind of putting it together here, that Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone. Now, we'll see in these passages, it says that 
He is the cornerstone that the builders of Israel rejected. They didn't want Christ. They didn't like him. They wouldn't put him in as a cornerstone. They wanted something else that was going to be their cornerstone. But Jesus is saying here, he is the one, the perfect one, that needs to be the cornerstone. So, however, here in this passage, the religious builders are not looking for the perfect cornerstone, but at their own perfection achieved through self-righteousness. I mean, that was their system, right? Their system was that they were achieving their own self-righteousness, their own self-perfection. They weren't looking for Jesus to come along and say, you guys aren't perfect. You can't be a cornerstone. Your whole system is flawed. You need somebody who has kept the law and kept it perfectly, and I'm the only one that has done that. They did not want to hear that. When you're into a self-righteous system, you will defend that system, and anybody that comes in any way, shape, or form to criticize it, you will reject them. So they reject Jesus because he does not fit their building. Jesus has a building in mind that he wants to build. They have a building in mind that they want to build. Their building is a system of self-righteousness. So he is offensive to them and their man-made religious system. And they want no part of him. Psalm 118.22, they would have been familiar with this which talks about the exact same thing that we're looking at here. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. That's what verse 17 is based off of, is Psalm 118.22. It was found right in their Old Testament. So in verse 18, where it says, Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever the chief cornerstone falls, it will scatter him like dust. So verse 18 is saying, you either reject the chief cornerstone, and here it uses the phrase stumble, that's what it means to reject, you're stumbling, and you fall on that stone and are smashed, or the chief cornerstone rejects you and you are crushed in judgment. Either way, it's not a good outcome for you. You reject, you stumble. You bring about your own demise and your own destruction. Or the chief cornerstone, the Lord Jesus Christ, in judgment, is going to fall upon you and crush you. And you'll notice at the end of verse 18 here, it says, But on whomever the chief cornerstone falls, it will scatter him like dust. And I think that's a reference to the fact that when 70 A.D. Titus came in, and his Roman army, and leveled Jerusalem, and scattered Israel. Killed over a million Jews, but there were also those that were scattered. Here it says it will scatter him like dust. Israel was scattered as well. To stumble here, just to further explain the meaning of it, it just means someone who just can't get around the stone. They just keep stumbling over and over again on the stone. So the religious leaders kept stumbling. They stumbled over his birth, his humble birth, his ability to expose their system, his servanthood, his mission, everything about Jesus they stumbled over because 
They did not want that kind of a Messiah. They wanted a military Messiah that would come and deliver them from Rome. And when that did not happen, they rejected him. They rejected him. If this foundation stone is not the means of your salvation, it will be the means of your ruin. Catch that. If this foundation stone, Jesus Christ, is not the means of your salvation, it will be the means of your ruin. Okay, Ephesians 2.20. i got a couple more passages I just want you to look at here, other places in the Bible. Ephesians 2.20 says, Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. This is an important passage because it's going to tell us who the others are that he mentioned in verse 16. And it's also going to tell us that there is a foundation that has been laid for these others. And these others, of course, are the church. And that foundation is made up of the apostles and the prophets and that Christ Jesus is the cornerstone. So here's the church. The church is now the people of God who have, catch it, temporarily replaced Israel. It's only temporary. God will has a grand and glorious future still for Israel. But they have been temporarily, Romans 9 through 11, they have been temporarily set aside. So in verse 16, when it said, He will come and destroy these vine growers and will give the vineyard to others, Those others means the church. And so after the resurrection, when they were waiting on the day of Pentecost, that's when the church was formed. The Holy Spirit uh, fell upon them. And you had a new group made up of Jew and Gentile. And they are the ones now, they are now the people of God. They are now the ones that God is using to accomplish his will in the world, being that Israel failed. The next slide, I've got kind of a diagram here of how this fits together. Again, Christ is the cornerstone. He's in the corner. All right. So you've got the Old Testament prophets. They all point to Christ. And then on the right side, you've got the apostles. And those apostles testify to Christ. They look back at Christ. So you've got all the books of the New Testament that have been written by Paul and and Jude, and Peter, and James, and so on. And they testify to Christ, and they look back at Christ. So the Gospels contain the story of Christ, who is the chief cornerstone. And those prophets, and those apostles, are built, and are aligned perfectly with the Lord Jesus Christ. One other passage, First Peter 2, 7 and 8. Peter says, this precious value then is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone. Israel threw out Jesus Christ. He was the cornerstone. They threw him out. They didn't want him as a cornerstone. But guess what? In the church, he becomes the chief cornerstone. Verse 8, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. 
Israel was so offended by Jesus Christ and what he said as he ripped open and laid bare their system of works, their system of righteousness. Notice, for they stumble because they are disobedient to the word. And to this doom they were also appointed. But they stumble. Their stumbling was in disobedience to the word. They had the word. They had it spoken. They had the Old Testament. They got the words of Jesus and so on. They're disobedient to the word. And so they just keep on stumbling. Had they been in tune with the word, obeyed the word, understood the word, they wouldn't have stumbled. But they just kept stumbling over who the person of Christ was, and he did not fit their criteria. Well, we have a great hymn that talks about Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone, the foundation for the church. It's called The Church's One Foundation. Let me just read the first verse. The Church's One Foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. She is his new creation by water and the word. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her, and for her life he died. When you sing that hymn, church service, think about what we talked about today, about him being the chief cornerstone, him being the foundation that was laid for the church. And that everything needs to line up with him. Well, let's look at three things in closing here in application. Number one, you just have to marvel at the graciousness and patience of God. I mean, that was not only in this parable, but the truth of all of that is found in the New Testament all the way up through the Gospels. How patient God is. How gracious he is. He keeps sending prophets and prophets and prophets. And finally, he sends his son. And they keep killing the prophets and beating the prophets and persecuting and maligning the prophets. And then finally, his son, he sends his son. I mean, he could have, he could have, the first prophet, after the first prophet, he could have said, okay, that's it. That's it, I'm switching to another group of people. He did not do that. He just kept sending prophets after prophets. That's his patience. That's his graciousness that he keeps doing that. And then finally sends the most precious thing to him, and that's his son. And they do the same thing to him. So you have to sit back, and you just really have to think about the grace of God and how it manifests itself in the life of the prophets and in the life of of the Lord Jesus Christ. Number two, the Lord Jesus is the perfect standard. It is by him and his word that we measure all things. I know we hit that from so many different angles. We talk about it, but it is so important because we, as sheep, we stray. We drift. We forget where our anchor is. And we drift away from the word. And we find other things in this world that we hook onto, that become our anchor, that become our guiding point in our lives. Look, there is only one anchor. It's Christ himself and his word. 
and you have to fight to stay true to that word always, all of the time, every day. Everything has to be judged by Him. We constantly have to go back to Him. That's why it's so important that we're in the Word all the time. And as we start a new year, I just trust that you will make the commitment to be in His Word all year long. Number three, there is no room for indifference. There is no riding the fence. You either receive him or you reject him and you face judgment. This parable is very plain, very simple. The truth just just sits right out there for us to grasp. Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by him and through him. And if we reject him, if we reject the chief corner stone, what's going to fall upon us will be judgment, will be the wrath of God. I pray today, anyone listening who has not turned their lives over to Christ, received him, repented of their sins, believed in him as Savior, I pray today you would do that. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful, so thankful for our chief corner stone. A stone who was persecuted, a stone who was maligned, a stone who was put to death for us, that we might have eternal life. And I'm thankful that he lived the perfect life. Your son lived the perfect life. And therefore, everything we can measure by him. And it's not something that's just floating around out there. No, it's it's grounded right down into the words of Scripture. So we can go to the words of Scripture and we can compare things that come into our lives. Do they square up with Christ? Do they square up with what the Word says? And we in this day and age in which we live, we are being torn asunder. The church is like a staggering drunk going from from place to place, uh, not understanding her anchor, her bearings. Lord, we just pray this year as we begin 2024, we pray for the church. We pray for there to be an awakening to your word, to the proclamation of your word. And so that we do not commit the sins that Israel committed in the Old Testament. We do not want a taste of your discipline, of your wrath. Lord, we want to remain true to you and allow you through us, through the church, to accomplish all that you want to accomplish in this life. For we pray this all in Jesus' name. And for his sake alone, amen.